0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red,
1: a UK true crime podcast. I'm Mark and I'm Bethan
0: and it's great to be back for another case.
1: Yeah thank you for joining us once again everybody.
0: Thank you to everybody once again who has rated and reviewed us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts
1: or who've chatted to us on social media as well. We love hearing from you guys and hearing what you think of the cases and having those conversations so
0: Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you to all of our lovely Patreon supporters. Yeah,
1: thank you very much, everybody. It means the world to us.
0: We're getting closer to our target of 36 patrons. Yes. So if you would like to help us achieve that target, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast, where you will gain access to some exclusive content.
1: Oh, exclusive. And you will also get some stuff (laughs) in the post. Yeah, it's wonderful. great stuff. We've got some brilliant merch. Yeah. So this week it's my turn to tell Mark a story. So he can just sit back, relax.
0: And do fuck all. And
1: do fuck all. Um and this case was actually one that was recommended to me by a work colleague. So I hope he enjoys hearing this. A great
0: guy. I know him well.
1: Bad relations between neighbours has been like a major theme on TV shows for a long time, whether it's a show where the fights are comical or real life documentaries in inverted commas where the TV crew follow people who are fighting with each other. And we'd mention the Philpots quite often, but obviously Mick Philpot was on like a He was. It wasn't necessarily like a nasty neighbours programme, but
0: But he kind of His neighbours didn't really like like him.
1: (laughs) It is really easy to think of it as being something that's purely for entertainment. It can go really serious, it can turn deadly. In June 2018, a 69-year-old man punched his neighbour through a car window and ended up in York Magistrates Court facing charges of assault. Two neighbours had made allegations that the man had reached through an open car window with his keys in his hand and hit the victim who was in the driver's seat. So he'd denied everything, and then the victim and his partner made claims that the attack was worse than it was, saying he'd even dragged the man out of the car. Um, It was like a real he said, she said sort of situation. And luckily for the courts, the incident was caught on CCTV. The judge did rule that the initial guy was in the wrong and he gave him a 16 week prison sentence, which was suspended for two years because of his age and his previous good character. But he also made a restraining order, which banned the man from pestering, harassing or molesting his neighbour and the partner. He said he was going to appeal his conviction and he actually alleged that MI5 might have been involved in the incident what? and stated he was going to make claims against the police and the judge that convicted him. But the judge actually suggested he seek medical help.
0: Sounds more yeah. like it, yeah. <laughs> So
1: he said, It is obvious to me and others that there is probably an undiagnosed issue that is likely to manifest itself in the future unless you're prepared to get help. That was in June 2018. So it's, it's not particularly unheard of. Um, In Cardiff, a row between next door neighbours ended in a court trial when a couple were accused of breaching a restraining order. So Desmond Hughes and Claire Anderson were accused of defying the order that banned them from contacting Nick Hancock, his wife Linda and their daughter Talia. The indefinite restraining order had been imposed by Cardiff Magistrates Court in July 2013 after being kind of convicted of harassing the Hancock family. It banned the defendants from contacting Mr Hancock or Mrs Hancock or their daughter directly or indirectly and they could only contact them via a solicitor. So they're next door neighbours and they can only talk via solicitor. It goes to show just how much of an impact things like this can have. They were prohibited from conducting video surveillance of the Hancock's home or taking photographs of the family or their house. And the case ended up in court again when they were accused of five different counts of breaching the restraining order on the first occasion, Desmond had used a ladder to lean over a wall and look into the garden. Um, Linda Hancock, she sounds quite feisty. She saw him from the dining room and went outside to confront him, saying, Are you having a good nose? You're clearly breaching the restraining order. This will be taken further. And then the next day he was hanging around outside the house. And she sort of said that he was basically behaving in a way that he was trying to intimidate her. Um, that was in the March and then in September Desmond Hughes and Claire Anderson apparently were shouting at Nick from their rear garden while he mowed his lawn, saying in an aggressive manner, You can move that fucking trampoline and you can move that shed as well. It's such little things, but it's so childish, how though, annoying though, isn't it? Yeah. and like
0: And when it's your next door neighbour, what can you do about it? Mm-hmm. Obviously they've gone to the police, they've got restraining order, but that is just not practical when yeah. you live next door to somebody.
1: Nick Hancock actually took his phone out and took a picture of them and Claire's in the picture with her middle finger up. So you can see the aggression in that. And then when the police investigated, they found on a camera belonging to Nick Hughes photographs of the Hancock's front and rear gardens. So it doesn't really sound like much individually, but when you put it all together, it must be so intimidating. Mm -hmm. And in Leeds, a man threatened his neighbours with a nine-inch blade during a confrontation on his driveway. He'd been drinking... He came out to see what was happening when his partner had an argument with another resident. He went back into the house and came out with a knife and was then threatening to stab people, shouting, come on, I'll kill you. He was restrained by another person in the street at the time and the police were called and he was actually jailed for eight months.
0: And I think we've probably all got examples where... You know, there's been places we've lived where we've not necessarily gotten on with every single mm-hmm. neighbour. Probably not examples as, as extreme as that. Well, you haven't
1: waved in in no, the knife at someone. No, but yeah.
0: like, yeah, I just you know that is terrible. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's it's just difficult to get on with your neighbours yeah. quite often, all of the time.
1: You don't choose those people. They're not your friends that you already know.
0: And we get so protective over mm-hmm. boundaries and our property and parking spaces oh, and hedges you know overgrowing.
1: What? You are foreshadowing this episode very well there Mark without knowing the episode Um, a link I did find really interesting going back to this guy in Leeds was when the police arrived he said I was from Moss Side and I was able to shoot people
0: Oh, that's clever, isn't it? Saying yeah. that to the police.
1: But also, I it really reminded me of that case we covered of those two young guys. Yeah, and, oh, that they was got so sad. That.
0: Was that a Patreon special? I
1: think it was a Patreon special, and they just got drawn into two
0: young idiots oh, paid ble- to assassinate yeah. a gang member, and they couldn't even it And they use just completely fucked it up.
1: It was horrendous. That was really that was just sad. like
0: a, oh, just a scene of carnage that you mm-hmm. painted.
1: So anyway, I thought it was interesting to kind of highlight that. Little things can really build up, and in those cases, nobody was injured, nobody was killed, but they're still so heartbreaking that you wouldn't feel safe in your own home.
0: But isn't it? And I, you know, I know I sometimes use the phrase, but it is almost like people can take it and take it and take it, and mm-hmm. then they do see red. Yeah, and we have seen that loads, and obviously that I know we we call seeing red.
1: I know we like to make a joke, but it's true. But it's kind of true, isn't yeah, it? Because I know I'm capable
0: of it. I think most people are.
1: In this week's main case, we're going to discuss a feud that was between neighbours, which obviously is not that unusual, and I think it was important to kind of highlight a couple of cases. However, on the 26th of July, 1990, in King Stanley, Gloucester, the feud ended with shots fired and a man dead. And the family of the man who was killed are still to this day seeking justice. So... Tony Alice had bought Beechwood Cottage in 1980 and the family lived there together. There was Tony, his wife and their three sons. The cottage was near the village of King Stanley in Gloucestershire and apparently this isn't very far from where Tony had grown up as a child. The cottage was situated on the south-west facing lower slopes of the Cotswold Hills and I've done my usual Google map searching. It is a really gorgeous area. Of course.
0: Because some of Gloucestershire is lovely. And some of it's horrible. Oh. So it's not always a given, is it?
1: No. But the Cotswold Hills, I mean that just sums up it how sounds beautiful nice. it is, yeah. The only issue that Tony Alice had with the property was that there wasn't really access for cars, so even though there was a way to walk to the cottage, cars had to be left at the side of the road and then people had to walk up a hill across a field to get to the house.
0: Oh, what bad planning when you built that house. Yeah. But then maybe it was built hundreds of years ago.
1: I think that's it. I think it was just on this land and it's not probably the end of the world, but what if you've got all your shopping or it's raining or you're just knackered after work? So pretty soon after they moved in, Tony Alice went to see his neighbour, Terence Mall to ask if he could sell him a right-of-way across his land. Terence refused, so Tony then contacted the owners of an area of woodland, which was called Penwood, that was basically alongside his house. So, the agreement then was made that Tony would look after the day to day running of the forest, and in return, he could use the track which ran through that to get to his cottage. The agreement seemed to work quite well for a while, and that was until 1987 when Tony Alice heard rumours that the wood was going to be put up for sale. He began to worry that he would lose access rights all over again, so he, along with a friend, actually then bought the woods themselves.
0: Great idea!
1: For £175,000 in 1990 which yeah I thought brilliant
0: and that's a lot of money back then Mm. you know that would be like getting on for half a million now
1: it's a big wood though big area yeah, yeah. yeah so if you have a google have a little google map search I'll have a little look you know what I like to do that but um it is very rural as well it's quite situated just in the middle of kind of nowhere in this field and the hills are beautiful So I do wonder whether the initial issue with Terence Moore not selling access was an ongoing sort of thing or not. But once Tony had purchased the land, he had solicitors contact Terence Moore, asking him to sort of move or remove completely a fence that was put up in the woodland. The fence meant that the Alice family felt like Terence was basically claiming a chunk of their land for himself. But Terence was claiming that the boundary had existed since he bought his property more than 20 years earlier. He ignored the solicitor's request... And when he failed to remove the fence within seven days, Tony went and took the fence down. Terence put it back up, and Tony took it down. Um, oh, see this time up.
0: and again in these kind Tony of disputes, it down. yes, you know, real childish behaviour. Mm-hmm. And I do understand it because you just get so frustrated. You absolutely so would. So I do get it, and I would behave in the same way. Yeah. But when you're looking at it quite objectively, it's really childish.
1: Yeah. According to Terence Moore, Tony Ellis apparently threatened him and his family on numerous occasions, and apparently once he beat him up. There's no proof to this, so I'm purely repeating what Terence has said, but it wasn't as farcical as it kind of seems, like, it was actually really, really serious. The 26th of July began as a normal day like many, many other days. St Peter's High School, Gloucester, had just broken up for the summer holidays. Mrs Alice and the two younger of her sons were away. One was with his mum in France and one had gone to visit his grandma in Nailsworth. So the third son, Lee Alice, was planning to spend the day with his dad. He spent some time feeding the animals on the farm and just helping out with various odd jobs that he would do to earn pocket money. Later that day, the pair spotted the fence in the wood and they were just like, for fuck's sake, it's like encroached on more of our land. So Tony set off in his Land Rover to go just take it down. I guess the same as what they had done many times before. Um, and he told Lee to just go and sort out the dogs. Now, this bit I loved. Lee went and fed his kestrel.
0: Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Random.
1: Um and but then they
0: use them for something? Yeah, probably some country. sort what? of hunting or yeah, something. Yeah, because... it's something like... Or yeah. maybe
1: to, like, scare away other birds.
0: Yeah, could be.
1: I think he um, he had, like, it was like a pet almost of his as well.
0: Yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah, so he fed his kestrel, and then he took their two Rottweilers, again awesome, one of my favourite types of dogs, um, out for their walk. Across the way, um, the moors were patrolling their land and they came across Tony Ellis taking down the fence. Terence and Greg were armed with shotguns and car tools because, they explained later, they wanted to frighten Tony but also to use as self-defence. Lee, out walking the dogs, heard what he described as an almighty loud bang echo across the valley. He turned around and followed to, across to where he'd heard the shot and as he got nearer to the altercation, he crouched down in the grass and began creeping along, trying to see what was going on. Suddenly he saw a flash and heard another shot, and in his own words he said, I saw the grass moving beneath my feet and felt a sharp sting. He had been shot himself as well. Greg Moore said in his statement that when they found Tony Alice taken down the fence, he told them he was going to get the police and walked away from the pair back up the footpath. Terence and Greg, who had their shotguns and tools in hand, followed him, and according to Greg, there was a struggle between Tony and Terence. Terence Moore then said that the struggle ensued in which Greg was pushed to the ground after Tony Alice tried to grab a gun, and then the gun went off hitting Tony, who staggered down the track for about 30 yards before he collapsed. I don't know if you can follow that. It's a, I'm, bit, yeah,
0: I'm a bit convoluted, confused. isn't
1: it? So Terence and Greg just had their shotguns.
0: So Terence and Greg are the Fathering guys... Some. And they're the guys that refused to sell the right of yeah. the way to Tony, was yeah. it? That moved and there in nineteen eighty. It's Tony's yeah.
1: Forest. So
0: So they've put the fence up in Tony's Forest again. Yeah. Tony's been taking it down.
1: And they've just come across him.
0: And they've turned up with shotguns? They've turned up with shotguns.
1: Yeah. Um so Terence is saying that the struggle ensued in which Greg was pushed to the ground, but then Greg was saying there was a struggle between Tony and Terence. Mm. So it's a little bit muddled. However, in a situation like this, of things course it's are be, muddled. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's most likely that Terence and Tony had a bit of an altercation. Greg, Terence's son, then mm-hmm. got involved to protect it his could dad, well be. Yeah. and that's when he was pushed to the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. So Tony staggered about thirty yards down the path and then collapsed. And Terence actually did go straight away to call for an ambulance, which, which kind
0: of proves that it could have been could an accident. have been an
1: accident. Um, but Tony had already died just a little way along the path, and that's when Greg's gun went off again. And in interviews what with the police, fuck? read out in court, Greg said that he'd put his gun down, and when he picked it up again, it went off accidentally. This is the shot that hit Lee as he crept towards the group.
0: And who was Lee?
1: And Lee is Tony's son, the one that was so Tony's been the killed, Kestrel. and now his
0: son's been bloody shot in yeah. the
1: um, he was hit on the arm, and he since said, oh. I was told at a later date I was lucky I didn't lose my right arm. So the whole thing has just suddenly gone from taking a fence down, putting it up, talking to solicitors, to... And they're, they're country folk who clearly have shotguns for what they do on their land... I just don't know how Mm. much I'd believe that your gun would accidentally go off.
0: It's a very suspicious altercation. They're Mm -hmm. used to using these guns if they own them. I
1: would have thought so. And I
0: mean, the damage that a shotgun does to a human body is obscene. Yeah. You know, there wouldn't have been a lot of Tony left. If he was shot in the torso, Mm -hmm. it would have blown a hole in in the size of a dinner plate.
1: Exactly. At Bristol Crown Court, the Alice family's lawyer, Tony Sherman, told the court that the malls had went out that night with the intention to cause harm or kill Tony Alice. That was his assumption. But the Malls have told police that they'd taken the guns into the wood in self-defence. Greg Mall told police, I wouldn't intentionally shoot anyone, but you know, I shot Mr Alice because I was just frightened of him shooting my dad and I accidentally hit this kid. I wouldn't do that, of course I wouldn't, I'm not some sort of monster." The Malls were jointly charged with murder and the trial took place the following year on the 13th of June, 1991, at Bristol Crown Court.
0: So Terence and Greg both charged with murder? yeah,
1: both charged jointly with murder. But just two weeks into the trial, the judge stopped the proceedings, saying, My judgment on the basis of the prosecution's evidence is that a jury could not be sure that there was an agreement to kill or to injure or to frighten in the absence of attack. In those circumstances, I propose to stop the case now in relation to both defendants on count one, the murder charge. So the judge directed the jury to return a not guilty verdict and basically ruled that there was no criminal case to answer.
0: Not even for manslaughter?
1: No. So Mr Justice Shyman told the jury, having considered the evidence over a course of a week or so... I am satisfied that you could not possibly properly come to the conclusion that there was evidence here which could make you sure that there was an agreement to murder Mr Alice, which is effectively what is charged in the first count of the indictment, or that you could be sure that Greg, when discharging that firearm, was neither acting in defence of his father, nor doing it by accident, nor something in between. And the Alice family could barely believe their ears when the judge continued on to praise the way that Greg Maul had acted in the circumstances, and his father could be proud of him, the judge said. What? The Moors were acquitted of all charges, so the charge for killing the father of four and wounding of Lee. Terence Moore was also cleared of possessing a firearm with the intention of endangering life, and both were given an absolute discharge after pleading guilty to having a shotgun without a licence. So you can understand I mean, why even, the Alice family are pissed off about this. Even that they should
0: have been yeah. done for.
1: Newspaper articles at the time of the shooting, so in, for example, The Citizen, discussed the row, and then in June 1991, the paper once again discussed this 10 year feud and the death in the woods. It followed up on this with a quote from Joyce Alice about how she had to rebuild her family and battle to do so after losing her best friend and partner of 20 years. And it talked about how Tony's son still worshipped him. There were photos of mourners at the funeral the August before. There were pictures of the cottages where the Alice and Wall families had lived. On the other side of the article, it discussed Greg attempting to rebuild his life following being acquitted. And they also showed a picture of Lee with a bird of prey and featured a section about him taking solace in his birds following the death of his dad and his major injury. Bob Alice, Tony's brother, did not sleep very well after the death of his brother. He stopped work and instead he devoted his life to trying to achieve what he and the rest of the family regard as justice. He doesn't believe that the gun was fired in self-defence. And Bob Alice has also been quoted as saying, "...for his life to be snuffed out in the way it was, and for the so-called facts of his death to be presented as they were in that court, was totally beyond belief." He said that his brother was grossly misrepresented at the trial, so he'd been portrayed as enormous, a physically powerful man, six foot four inches tall, weighing 18 to 20 stone, who was always fighting. But in fact, according to his brother, he was a far less intimidating five foot 11, 14 stone, family man, described in witness statements as conscientious, honest, generous, kind and hardworking. And it's very easy to kind of go, uh, that's it's the victim they're perfect but I do think it's interesting that they really exaggerated his height and weight I mean those and... are
0: some facts that you can't yeah. really dispute so yeah I mean yeah that's unacceptable
1: Bob wanted to get a civil case to court in which he would present evidence from a ballistic expert that the moors were actually lying in wait for his brother and that they unlawfully killed him I've gone through life without even a parking ticket and then to be confronted with something like this is a joke said Bob and Alice People say you've got to get on with your life, but that was my only brother. I thought we would, with luck, get to old age together. No one can bring back life. Once life is declared extinct, that's it. But there's a need for the truth to play some part in life as a whole. Lee was unsettled following his dad's death. I guess that's a bit of a fucking understatement. He was just 14 when he was shot and watched his father die on that track. And he has described it as all feeling stuck. He said in an interview... Right from primary school, you get the local copper coming in and teaching you what's right and what's wrong. And then something like this happens. I can't settle until it's sorted out. It's like a millstone around your neck. I feel like I'm stuck. I can't move forward. It affects everything in your life. Lee went on to become a professional boxer and then an actor and he wanted to make a film about his dad's death to kind of show people the truth, saying, we want the truth, the complete and utter truth. I know I can't bring dad back, but what I want to do is bring him some justice. Lee Alice was then convicted of assaulting Terence Moore on the fourth anniversary of his father's funeral. Thirteen years after the shooting, he attempted to claim compensation for the personal damages, unlawful killing and unlawful assault in a civil case. But basically, like, nothing's been solved. So time and time again, what's been reported on is that the police investigation into the shooting and whether this was done properly is something that's looked at quite a lot. So double jeopardy is the legal principle which says a person cannot be trialled for the same crime twice. And at the time of the trial and the acquittal, this principle did mean that the malls were acquitted. Therefore, they couldn't be tried for the same crime again. But double jeopardy was repealed by the Labour government in the UK in 2005 after senior judges and legal figures called for more sort of rules to deal with complex crimes that could kind of be... Like moved around. And and, I think
0: with the way sort of DNA evidence continues to evolve it's quite important that we can potentially bring somebody to trial once again when new evidence
1: comes to light. Exactly the Court of Appeal was given the right to allow for a retrial even after acquittal if quote new compelling reliable and substantial evidence came to light. This has had a huge impact on some really high profile cases so for example the case of Stephen Lawrence He was aged 18 when he was murdered in April 1993 in a race attack. It is one of the most high profile and notorious crimes in British modern history and the investigation into his killing did lead to the initial charging of five suspects but they were not convicted. The public inquiry in 1999 concluded that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist so when the law change came into effect in 2005... Two of the original suspects then were made to stand trial again for murder in 2011. And that was because new and substantial evidence became available. Finally, in 2012, they were found guilty of Stephen's murder.
0: See, I, um, you know, kind of grew up hearing about that case on the news, but I just never really knew exactly what happened in the end.
1: Yeah, and it's, it was so many years later. It was, yeah,
0: really protracted, mm-hmm. multiple cases and charges, yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. So that double jeopardy change in the law really helped with that case, and there's so many other examples as well. Bob Alice has been backed by former Scotland Yard Head of Homicide Investigation, Dave Johnston. He became involved with the Alice family as a police commander and as vice chairman of the ACPO Homicide Working Group. And he's a trustee of the National Victims Association. Bob Alice wants the original evidence to be reviewed, but is really struggling to get that looked at. And Dave Johnston has been quoted as saying, it doesn't matter what I think, but the Alice's will never give up. They're stuck in a circular argument. The police will say that the malls have been acquitted and there's no new evidence they can't reinvestigate. The CPS won't review, without new evidence, the original evidence. So they're just stuck between a rock and a hard place. Dave Johnston has said that he is involved in the capacity as someone who takes what he sees as new evidence and writes a report on it. So one such area to be reassessed was it was the view of the pathologist, Hugh White, that Tony Alice was lifting his arm to protect himself and his arms were in a stance like a boxer protecting himself when he was shot. Another area was that the ballistics expert, Frank Swan, had said that Tony Alice could not have bent the barrel of the gun in a struggle... He was quoted as being four inches taller than he actually was, and as threatening. He also felt that the idea of Tony being a large, threatening man was a picture which was false, and in his view, it wrongly allowed self-defence to be run as a motive for them killing him. He then also sent his report to the Director of Public Prosecutions, and they had a meeting with the Alice family, but sadly for the Alice family, they concluded that although there were key points made... They just didn't consider it new and compelling enough. Bob Alice said, I am very grateful to Dave Johnson for his support. He is stating exactly what I've been saying since I obtained the evidence from Gloucester Constabulary in 1999. With Dave, Frank Swan and Hugh White supporting me, I have been trying to get this case fully reinvestigated ever since. The case has been reviewed several times by Gloucester police and the most recent review was by a very experienced and senior detective who had recently moved to the force and had no connection to the original investigation. Gloucester police have stated that the review found that there is no new or compelling evidence as defined by the Criminal Justice Act of 2003 that would allow them to return the case to the CPS. So it's just constantly just going round Mm. and round the same. And you
0: you get the impression it doesn't really matter what happens, who looks into Mm -hmm. it, when that is going to be. It's just they're never going to get justice.
1: I do think, though, it was... They're the only people who were there at that time. There's no CCTV. What new evidence is going to come to light? And whilst I do feel really sorry for this family because this is what they want, some sort of justice, I just can't see that they're going to get anything different out of this.
0: And I think, again, obviously I've never been in that situation but I think, you know, they really need to, it sounds so awful, but they need to look at moving forward mm-hmm. on a different path. Yeah. In order to get any form of closure. But then when you're in that situation, perhaps until you've achieved what you, you know, see to be justice, it, you just will never yeah, move forward never in rest. any way on any path. Yeah. So I don't know. I You know, it's naive of me to say that, but that's how I feel.
1: mm. The Alice family is saying they don't care about money, so they're not doing this to try and get monetary sort of reward or anything. They just want to prove that the killing was unlawful and they want to claim damages for the physical injury that Lee suffered, the trauma of the incident itself, and the subsequent post-traumatic stress disorder that he suffered. The key thing for them, however, is for the truth to come out. Gloucester police have looked into the case a few times and they said their reviews included visiting the family, visiting to the scene and also um, listening to all the concerns. But again, they didn't make any new discoveries. They have said that they'll keep the case on their radar where possible. So whilst the Alice family believe the legal system or the justice system has failed them, my opinion is the police are trying to do what they can They've they've not closed this off. They've actually said it will yeah. be something we'll reinvestigate.
0: And I think it's a case of, you know, what else can they do? We're not going to close the case because you mm-hmm. just never know. Yeah. Something could move it forward. It's extremely unlikely, but yeah, it's 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 a waste of time, really.
1: In 2017, another request Fucking for a retrial hell. was refused 27 years yeah. later. The papers reported that, quote, the brother of a man who died of shotgun wounds 27 years ago has expressed his dismay after police knocked back his request for a retrial on fresh evidence. This was actually relating to Bob Alice, again, who was continuing his tireless campaigns for a retrial. But Detective Chief Inspector Richard O'Cone, the officer who led the investigation into the killing of Becky Watts in Bristol, reviewed the case in 2017 and once again found no evidence or sort of new or compelling enough to warrant opening the case. He said, I have now completed a full review of the Tony Ellis case and have found that there is no new or compelling evidence as defined by the Criminal Justice Act of 2003, which would allow us to return the case to the Crown Prosecution Service. As part of my review, I visited Tony's family and the scene to listen to and assess all their concerns, and I could not help but be deeply impressed by their dignity and their determination to achieve justice. We understand their continued anguish over what happened and know this outcome is not what they would have wanted. However, in accordance with national standards, the case will be the subject of a rolling two-year review, and if new or compelling evidence is brought forward, we will act on it. DCI O'Cone even visited the scene where Tony Alice died with Bob Alice but to no avail.
0: Of course.
1: Yeah. My final quote for this episode is from Bob, who said he will not give up the fight for his brother. I won't stop, he said. It is very disappointing because we think there is enough evidence. This has taken up my life for 27 years, and this won't stop it. It just makes me more determined. And as recently as 2018, the case was in the papers. And I think it's really interesting that this is a case that people in the local area are still talking about. The fact that... um sort of sat chatting at work about the fact that we do a podcast and that sort of thing and then it's like oh well there's this case from nearby you the way it's talked about you think it has just happened Mm -hmm. and actually it was 30 years ago
0: but then because it's constantly in the media Mm -hmm. and that's almost like a you know there is a sense of community yeah absolutely um, some of these kind of small villages and towns in the Cotswolds so it it would live on you know Mm -hmm. what happened there there's a legacy. Uh, people don't move away, so yeah. the family members of the victims are still most likely there. Keeping and the on family the, members the of the malls
1: as well, I should imagine. Yeah, yeah. Because Terence Moore has already has now passed away, so um, he isn't around anymore. But the rest of the family and other members, or his extended family or friends. So yeah, yeah. I thought it was a really one. interesting case.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I feel about it because mm. I'm. I probably genuinely sit on the fence in terms of you know was that murder or was it an accident yeah. i just don't know
1: i think that it wasn't premeditated murder however they took guns for a reason yeah and i just think that cheesy as it is they saw red in that moment it was i don't know how many times that fence had been taken down and put up and i never tried to put a fence up mark but i imagine it's not fucking easy yeah I imagine there's like a lot of Poles I don't know of why I'm going, Yeah, I've
0: never done it. <laughs> I can imagine it's difficult.
1: Yeah. So there you go, Gav. I hope you enjoyed our retelling of the case. Yeah, and thanks it was something that. One, that Gav. Yeah, thank you for telling us about it.
0: If any of you have any suggestions for us, then mm-hmm. please don't hesitate to get in touch in all of the usual ways.
1: Please do. We've um, had a few episodes, haven't we, where we've kind of reported back cases yeah. that people have mentioned. And there's we've had a couple of Instagram messages recently. So hopefully, they're cases we might be able to fit in.
0: Yeah. Soon. Yeah, we're always looking for inspiration. Um so yeah, if you do want to hear us cover a particular case that you're interested in, then yeah, please get in touch in all the usual ways.
1: So Facebook, Instagram and Twitter Correct. search Seeing Red, a UK True Crime Podcast. And uh, you can email us at
0: Info at seeingredpodcast dot com.
1: There we go.
0: And if you want to check a bit of money our way, then head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and help to uh, contribute to the show's finances and mm-hmm. keep us here for A long time, not just a good time.
1: You love saying that now. That's your favourite thing to say now. Thanks again for listening, guys.
0: Until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.